talking about the method of these lectures. Improvisation. It's an improvised performance. And that means that what you get is different from a, a prepared script that many lecturers lecture from. It can't be conceived of as lecturing for knowledge, since the speed with which one has to take decisions in an improvised performance is such that you don't know what's going to come out. And, and I can't claim authority for everything that I say. I mean, what are these lectures for if they're not lectures for knowledge? I mean, I don't really care whether you accept or or take from me what I say. What I'm lecturing for is to, is to generate the enthusiasm which is bound to be selective for reading some of the stuff that I want to talk about. I want to set up questions in your mind. I'm lecturing, if you like, for belief, not knowledge. I mean, uh, the word belief in, in, in Old English meant something beloved. It's something held dear, and uh, it's something that I'm very concerned to promote, if I can. Because, as I was saying, my method is, is improvisation. And the, I mean, most people, when they lecture, essentially, it seems that they're lecturing in order to prove to the students that their ideas are dead that ideas have nothing to do with life, that they exist in dead texts, and, and that, that the lecturer reads from his own dead text in order to uh, communicate something fixed about these uh, texts. I mean, my aim in, uh, in speaking this way is, is, first of all, to remind you that ideas are part of life and that by uh, performing in this way, what I have to say comes across as a live performance. And this live performance, I mean, has all kinds of uh, uh, benefits. I mean, first of all, if I'm not reading from a prepared script and worried sick that I won't get my prepared script across properly, I can actually be open to you as an audience. And, I mean, like any other performance, there is an energy exchange between the audience and the lecturer. And, uh, I mean, I can actually, I'm quite sensitive to this. And I can feel when I've lost you. I mean, I can feel it in mid-sentence. And, and I have to do something instantly to get you back. I mean, it's that kind of of responding, it is completely irrational, it can't be based on reasoning or plan or any of those things, it's about what is necessary somehow to keep the audience engaged and it's this engagement that the method is, is designed, is seeking, not to say that I will always engage you, but it's, it's possible. The other thing is that when people listen to a, a lecture, they often get good ideas. Some things that come, they think, come from the lecture. But in fact, I just give you an anecdote. I mean, when I, the first lecture I ever gave 
in my first job, I decided to improvise my lecture. And I was, I, I was trained at Cambridge, which is a very traditional kind of place, which has podiums and places for lecturers to stand up on and be superior from and so on. And I, this was a new university, and uh, it was just a seminar room. And I had to locate myself somewhere in it. So I couldn't even see all the audience. Then that was my first uh, problem. The second was that, that my wife and mother-in-law asked to come. And, uh, and I agreed. And there were perhaps other features. Anyway, after about 15 minutes, I froze. <coughs> I couldn't say anything. Uh, you know, I, I just froze up. So I said, well, one of you ask me a question, please. Then there was this kind of standard issue American graduate student who asked a question. And it took me about four minutes to answer that question. And then I realized that I was going nowhere. And I canceled the lecture. I then wrote uh, uh, my lectures for 20 years after that. But sometime later on in life, I came back to the method. The, the issue of improvising is you have to trust the unconscious mind. You have to be you know, willing to suppose that it's in there somewhere if you give it a chance. But of course the enemy of trust is fear. Fear of failure. And we all have it, including me. I haven't done this for years. Uh, so you can imagine I'm full of trepidation, even if it doesn't seem so. Why would we have a course on Africa in world history? Uh, the first reason is that Africa's position in the world is going through quite dramatic change at the moment. I mean, in 1950, the population of Africa was half that of Greater Eurasia, which is Western Eastern Europe and Russia up to the Ural Mountains. Sometime recently, Africa had a population which was double that population. I mean, at the beginning of the 20th century, Africa was the least uh, urbanized and the most underpopulated major inhabited region in the world. By the end of the 21st century, Africa will account for 37% of the world population, according to the latest UN projections. 25% of the world population in uh, 2050. This is an extraordinary change in the composition of the human population, and it occurs because all the other populations in the world are aging, and Africa's population is still growing. The fertility rate exceeds uh, uh, the death rate by some substantial amount, on average, 2.5% a year. And of course, the Chinese, the Asian exporters of manufacturers have already figured this out, that this is the largest and fastest growing market for their goods in the world. I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, Chinese desire for African minerals and so on, but the Asian exporters have known for a long time that Africa is the future of the world market. The second reason is that the first 50 years of independence 
were uh, an economic disaster for most of, of Africa. But since the millennium, seven out of the ten fastest growing economies in the world are in Africa. The other three are China, India, and Vietnam. There are problems with measuring GNP, but I think this uh, palpable growth of African economies is real and irreversible. Uh, you might get a, a different view of it from South Africa, whose economy in fact is more like that of Europe and North America in terms of its current growth rate. In other words, the South African economy, which has for some time conceived of itself as being part of a world economy governed from London and New York, is actually suffering from many of the same problems with the additional one, of course, of having a very large population with almost no money to spend. So the economic growth of Africa is, is palpable, and of course we'll be investigating these assertions later in the course. There is another reason for studying Africa in world history, which is that Africa has played a striking role in the versions of world history that have come out of the West uh, in the last two or three centuries. African, I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, and I will be discussing it later in this lecture, Africa has played a, a major role at the bottom of a racial hierarchy identified by the West. And it remains the case that people of color uh, everywhere, and especially in Africa, have a tremendous stake in the dismantling of this racial world order, uh, which will be uh, achieved principally by the achievements of Africans, both principally in Africa but also abroad. Third, the Africa has often been studied academically as an object in its own right, as uh, something that African studies is concerned with. In other words, it's often been the case that the relationship of Africa to the world has not been a concern of people who study Africa. Because they've studied Africa for whatever reason, but not as part of any historical conception of the evolution of world society. Another reason for studying Africa in world history is that it's very common that we, we live we live in an age of national society in which people live by national media, national politics. They tend to think of most questions as being specific to their own country or resolvable by their own means. We have to break out of that. But also it's been the case that uh, Africa in the first half of the 20th century sustained one of the largest and most inclusive political movements, uh, well, the largest and most inclusive political movement of the time, which is known <coughs> as Pan-Africanism, which was the uh, unification of, of the mobilization of Africans in Africa and people of African descent in the New World especially, behind the drive to evict the white occupiers of Africa, get the land back, for Africans. But when the European empires collapsed in Africa, which they did over a period of 
20 years or so, when these empires collapsed, they were succeeded by uh, national governments. These national governments often fail to take into account how their relationship to the world might affect what they could do. Or they capitulated very easily to uh, foreign powers and simply did what they were told to do. Certainly one can say that the ANC in South Africa, which you would think could have learned from uh, 30 or 40 years of this kind of experience in Africa, uh, appeared to make the same mistakes. Either they, I mean, you would think that a South Africa that had the world's favorite politician as its leader, which had mobilized the whole world in the anti-apartheid campaign and mobilized the frontline states of Africa behind the struggle, that they would have had some sense of their worth, uh, their political worth, in establishing a distinctive economic strategy. But by 1996, they had capitulated from any such uh, strategy. So uh, the first thing it seems to me that is important to study Africa in world history for is that we need a perspective on our times that enable emancipatory strategies to take into account what the world is now and what it has been and what it might become. This is the single most uh, important reason for doing this course. Now, the method that I've chosen for these lectures is to take a few uh, key uh, texts and talk to them. As I said at the beginning, when half of you were here, I don't expect you to have read these books. I'm really hoping to give you a, a stimulus to, to read uh, some of them, at any rate. I forgot, of course, that the last reason for doing this course is that most uh, accounts of world history are written from the perspective of the previous winners, and Africa is always a kind of bit player tacked on to the end of that. So, at the very least, what we get by posing the question of what is the history of Africa in the world, we'll be doing something which is not normally done in uh, existing world histories. And that's reflected also in the books that I've chosen to talk about. I mean, a very substantial number of them are written by Africans and people of African descent. In fact, the, the, the strongest of these books are written uh, by Caribbean writers, by Franz Fanon, uh, C.L.R. James. I also have included the Caribbean Nobel Prize winning econ economist, W. Arthur Lewis, whose vision of uh, the formation of the world as a world economy, as a racial order, I think is very important. I've also included the great American Pan-Africanist, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, I think his book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, which is the third that he published in around 1902, is quite the most beautiful and moving book on our subject available. So in that case, and in the case, for example, of James's famous book on the history of the Haitian Revolution, 
like Jacobins, I'll be spending a lot of time dealing with the book itself. I've included today a famous book by Walter Rodney and another by the Senegalese writer Sheikh Amtai Job. I won't be uh, discussing them in such detail, but I will be discussing them later. So these are some of the perspectives that led me to design this course. It, it was particularly because we, in the Human Economy Program, we had just recruited eight African PhD students of several disciplines, and I wanted to, to give them the chance to place their work uh, within such a perspective of Africa's place in world history. But of course, it's uh, more general interest, I suppose, than that. In the 20th century, I suppose there were uh, three uh, great principles, political principles, if you like. One of them was capitalism. One of them was the nation, or nation-state. And the other was socialism. So part of our task at the beginning of the 21st century, and under really quite different conditions from most of the 20th century, is to understand how uh, these three uh, ideas interacted with each other. At the same time, I've mentioned several times that we cannot avoid uh, the issue of race. I mean, any synoptic approach to Africa's place in world history has to encounter the question of race. Okay, maybe a, a better way of, of approaching this is to say, well, what is Africa anyway? What is Africa? And there are, in fact, two principal themes in seeking to define Africa. One is that it is the land of the black people. So, it, in other words, it is a racial category. The Arabs called it the uh, Sudan, the Sudan meaning black people. It's also uh, a continent, it's a, a territory defined by the Atlantic and Indian Oceans and divided from other geographical entities by the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. <clears throat> now these two definitions are in some kind of contest with each other. For example, especially let's say in South Africa, where one could hardly claim that the, that the only population or, you know, is, is, is black. Many people prefer a territorial definition because it's non-racial. We've been watching, some of us, endlessly, the African Cup of Nations. And today, this knockout competition every year between African nations, which takes in the whole of the continent, is a vivid reminder of uh, some of the diversity of the populations that uh, live in it. And uh, one of the books that I'll be talking about today, Sheikh Antar's, Antar Chop's uh, The African Origins of Civilization, is intimately concerned with this question by tackling the issue of whether Egypt, when it was uh, the first civilization on the planet, was in fact 
occupied by a black population. Because against that, there has been uh, an argument, uh, a trend for many years, certainly throughout the uh, 19th and 20th century, to argue that the land of the blacks is not this continental mass, but it's south of the Sahara, sub-Saharan Africa, that the blacks occupy the place south of the Sahara, and that north of the Sahara are people of white, brown, red, mixed uh, race, because north of the Sahara where North Africa, in other words, played a major part in the development of urban civilization 5,000 years ago. So this division between Africa south of the Sahara and Africa north of it addresses this question, which is, uh, is Africa a unified territorial civilization or culture, or is it not? And this again is something that we'll be looking at uh, in some detail throughout. But basically, it, uh, what is built into this issue of defining Africa is the notion that people, that black people are not civilized and that white or people like them uh, are. And this is the, you know, this is the, the fundamental question. And I want to give you some idea of how this came about, because one of the major themes of this course is going to be development. And although uh, racism is widespread and has been for many centuries, a particular kind of imperial race racism was installed in the course of the 19th century. And it came out of uh, 19th century Western anthropology. I mean, the fundamental question that the anthropologists had to account for in the 19th century was why is it that a few people of European origin managed to take over the world so quickly? Because before the 19th century, Europeans uh, had their little colonies in various places but they were not uh, significantly superior to other major populations in the world. Uh, even in West Africa, where the Atlantic slave trade was organized, the terms of this slave trade were not dictated by Europeans. The Africans were, who supplied the slaves were perfectly uh, capable of standing up to them. So the question that arose in the course I mean, by the end of the 19th century, 90% of the occupied land in the world was controlled by people of European descent. Nine-tenths of the landmass was controlled. And so the question that the Europeans had to answer was, how did we do it? How, you know, why us? Because it is a fact that they did it. And the way that they answered the question, first of all, was that we must have a cultural advantage over the others. To put it simply, we must be smarter than them. We have developed science and technology and our means and instruments for 
dominating the world as simply superior to the rest. And if you ask how did we get them, then uh, uh, it must be because we're smarter. We must have a culture that makes us scientific and the rest magical or religious or superstitious or something like that. But what turned it, so it, turned it into a racial argument was that still left the question of where did this cultural advantage come from? What supplied it? And, and, and that's the point at which race kicks in. That there must be a biological basis for this mental superiority. And that this biological basis for superiority can be understood as a system of classification primarily through reference to skin color. In other words, white people at the top, brown and yellow people in, on the, in the middle, and black people at the bottom. It's this combination of culture and biology that produce the racial system. This again, I'm only highlighting this question, which is going to come up several times later, where we can discuss it in, in, in much greater detail. So, this is the point at which Sheikh Antar Job in uh, the 1950s and Walter Rodney in the 1970s produced their two books. Now, what these two books are, and the reason I'm asking you to look at them, is that Sheikh Antar Job's book is a nationalist history. In other words, the race that has been posited by European imperialism, black people, is conceived of as a nation. And the idea that this nation is backward as a civilization is to be turned on its head by showing that Egypt was black. Because in the 18th century and afterwards, many people believed that, that civilization was only invented once, and it was invented in Egypt, and that all the other civilizations derived from it somehow. So in the 19th century, people put a lot of effort into trying to trace the connections between Egypt and the rest of the world. There was even some crazy Norwegian in the 1950s who sailed the balsa raft across the Atlantic in order to prove that, that the Egyptian pharaohs could have been responsible for the Incas in Peru. Uh, they could have got there using the technology they had and so on. So this idea that the... I mean, it's one of the main themes of Mozart's uh, Magic Flute opera. I mean, many of the most distinguished British anthropologists around 1900 were committed to this line. They were called diffusionists, people who believed that there had been a unique invention of another kind of level involving cities and states, and this had diffused from a single point, namely Egypt. So what Sheikh Antar Jump is, is doing is he's taking that kind of tradition and turning it on its head, if you read it, you'll see, you know, that, that I mean, <laughs> he has, I should have brought the book, he has pictures, he has one picture of a Nubian mask, and another picture of a Swiss mask, 
And the Swiss mask is some grotesque, you know, they use the Mardi Gras and, you know, uh, and so on. And you look at these two and say, which of these is civilized, I ask you, you know. What, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to get you to think about when you read these books is to have some sense of who the writers were. It's not just a question of reading the text. You know, who wrote it and in what circumstances and what was the broadest context of those circumstances. Now, this guy was the head of uh, French West African Students' Union after the war in Paris. In other words, he was a student rebel rouser, a, a major political figure in, uh, in, in the late 1940s. And he was trained and worked with the best French anthropologists and historians and, and Egyptologists uh, of his day. There is a university, by the way, in Senegal now named after him. I mean, a very major figure. But the point is that this is the period after the Second World War when uh, the impact of the Second World War was to dismantle the European Empire. I mean, there were several factors involved, but it happened first of all in Asia. Uh, the Indians achieved their independence in 1947. Indonesia, which had been occupied by the Japanese, uh, became independent of sorts in 1945. The uh, Chinese Revolution finally succeeded in 1949. So, in a very short period, the Europeans were kicked out of Asia. In Africa, although the movement towards independence uh, took a bit longer, the period after the war was dynamite everywhere, in Johannesburg, in Accra, in uh, Lagos, uh, Nairobi, uh, diff different places. The soldiers who came back from the war were simply not going to take it anymore. And especially in the Gold Coast, which became Ghana, I mean, the British saw immediately that the rising was on the wall. There was no, it was just a question of when they had to move out. Not and how, but not if. So, uh, in this period of the late 1940s and 1950s was one of intense optimism in uh, Africa that uh, the, the colonial powers would be at last dislodged. And indeed, they were. I mean, the Portuguese uh, hung on longer than anyone, but uh, by the mid-1960s, almost the whole of Africa was uh, independent. So, Sheikh Antajop is writing a book uh, in this period in which he, he's writing, if you like, a, a charter for African pride, you know, that we have been put down for so long by these people, we've been fed lies. And, you know, you should read this book. I mean, it, some of its uh, assertions are pretty flaky. But his critique of the methods of Egyptology and of Western anthropology and history and so on, uh, devastating. I mean, he repeats some of the errors that they made because to some extent his, his attempt uh, is, I don't think, capable of being pulled off. Uh, in any in clear-cut way. I mean, for example, uh, he will show you, he, he argues that there are three 
dimensions uh, to identifying this national history that he's concerned with. One of them is psychological, by which he means cultural or, or, or cognitive. Uh, one is historical, what is the historical record? And the third is linguistic. He is particularly con condemnatory of ethnography as a method. He believes that ethnography is, is really a way of trying to make sure that you can't see the wood for the trees. It, 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 no great people is going to be concerned with petty history and ethnography. I mean, we, you, know, you can always show the local variation uh, exists uh, everywhere and undermines any claim of uh, the trajectory of a people conceived of in broader terms. I mean, the point is that the Europeans, the West, I mean, he shows in great detail how people just, I mean, they, they have to show that the Egyptians were white, okay? This is the, and, and the, the methods that were used to distort the evidence to support this contention is remarkable. I mean, they, you know, some of his contentions, you know, you might want to dispute a bit, but what he's good for is showing the extraordinary lens that scholars, the best scholars of their generation would go to, to prove that the Egyptians were us, not them. And uh, it's really worth it for that alone. I mean, I, I, I really like the book, although I don't like the method, I don't like nationalism, uh, <laughs> which it seems to me that nationalism is a species of racism without the same aspiration to being systematic. At least racism is a set of terms that have some kind of logical relationship to each other. Like a class system, where you have upper, middle, lower, or whatever. But nationalism is just, we're different. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we have our own uh, specificity. And in, in most cases, I think it's, uh, uh, the, the, the attempt to establish the existence of these nations is spurious. Uh, but that's uh, something perhaps we can come back to later. So that's Job to some extent. Now, as I said, I'm not going to be examining his book in the same detail. But I really think it's worth you looking at it uh, in order to really as a mirror of the kinds of methods that were used by Western academics and others to establish a genealogy of world history in which they came out on top and always were there. Walter Rodney is a, a different figure. He's from Guyana in the Caribbean, which is on the mainland. He died at the age of 38. Uh, he was assassinated blown up in a car. He was a very gifted uh, scholar, went to the University of West Indies in Jamaica, a historian, and he taught at Dar es Salaam in the 60s, which was the, a period where, 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 where near areas, Tanzania was a kind of beacon for progressive uh, intellectuals around the world. I mean, his, it really was a, a, a place of intellectual ferment and political hope. 
and he taught history there. Uh, then he went back to uh, Guyana. He published his book in 1972. Uh, he went back to Guyana and he was the leader of the main revolutionary party. The government was, uh, was run by a guy called Forbes Burnham and almost certainly under the instigation of, of, the, of Burnham, he was blown up, which was great for his reputation, but not as most for him, <laughs> because he then became a hero. Now, his book is called How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and this is a book which I'm sure in uh, most previous versions of such a course would be uh, the main text. But it's written in a, a different period uh, from, from Job. This is the height of the Cold War. And he writes his history as a socialist history. I mean, essentially, the world is going through a revolution, a socialist revolution against what the, they call the capitalist imperialist powers. So this is a, a world in around 1970 where socialism, according to him, has already proven its superiority to capitalism. And I should say that this is not, that in the early 70s, this was not a wild idea. There were many, first of all, there were, uh, in the 1950s, there were many American sociologists who published books saying that the Soviet Union and, and the United States were more or less the same thing. Uh, there's a guy called Clark Kerr uh, who wrote a book on industrial society in which he suggested that there was such a convergence. I mean, after the war, I mean, everybody knew that Stalin had beaten Hitler. I mean, I mean you know, in, in the battle of Kursk alone, the Russians lost more material than was used up in the whole of the First World War. Okay? I mean, this was, I mean, when the Nazi war machine went against Stalin's war machine, this was the, the whole point of the Second World War. Whatever else the rest of us did in the periphery, that was the big war. And Stalin had, had mobilized all these tanks and planes and guns. I mean, he'd done it on the, on the back of a really uh, backward uh, semi-feudal economy in 1917. So, and after the war, there was a great deal of pessimism in the West. Many people thought, they looked around and they saw the devastation in Europe and uh, they really believed that capitalism had been killed off by the war. And there was one writer, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who argued that it was a great opportunity. That he called it creative destruction. I mean, if you knock everything down, then you can build it up again. Just think with the opportunities. Uh, so he, he was saying that the war was a great opportunity, which it turned out to be. But the fact is that the Western economies didn't start turning around until around the Korean War, 1950-1951. And even then, there were many people, not just communists, who believed that, that the Soviet method was superior. So 
So it wasn't so, it's not so crazy for him to believe that the capitalist societies are unequal and that people uh, are exploited and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, whereas, you know, the socialist economies are building better education and health systems for everyone, there's less inequality and so on and so forth. So the point of this book is really to persuade Africans that uh, they need to make a break with the Western capitalist imperialist system if they are to develop. And so the book uh, employs something called uh, underdevelopment theory. Now this was really quite hot off the presses at the time. I mean, in the 1960s, the basic theory of uh, development in the West, the American-led West, was called modernization theory. And modernization theory was based on the idea, if you want to develop, we are modern, you are traditional, so development means acquiring whatever it is that made us modern. This is what I call the bourgeois package. The bourgeois package consists of, uh, first of all, capital. What you need is money and entrepreneurship to go with it. You need science and technology. You need cities. You need the rule of law. You need education, you need democracy. So there you go, cities, capitalism, <coughs> science and technology, rule of law, democracy, and education. Now, in the 1960s, the 60s was coming to the end of the longest boom in world history which started, as I said, around the end of the 40s, beginning of the 50s, and began to unravel in the 1970s. But in the 1960s, the Western economies had been on an unbroken period of economic growth. And not just them, I mean many around the world, including the Soviet bloc economies. And so the, the general notion of development was there's enough for everybody to go around. The rich countries can help the poor countries to become richer and we can do it out of the surpluses that are being generated by our becoming richer in the first place. That was, that was the idea. And, and there was some evidence for it. There were developmental states everywhere. Newly independent uh, countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Soviet bloc, and even the Western economies were organized around uh, economic expansion by building up public services, public expenditure, expanding education and health and the rest of it. So it seemed quite reasonable then to suggest that somehow this modernization recipe could work. But by 1970, it was very clear that it hadn't worked. That there was, in fact, that people were piling up in third world cities without any work to do. The inequality of the world economy was huge. 
uh, and getting larger in some respects. And it was into this space that underdevelopment theory arose. Underdevelopment said that this modernization theory doesn't take into, into account that they got rich by ripping us off. Okay. So, uh, so the idea is it's a zero-sum game in which if A gets richer, B gets poorer. Entered into the argument. It was pioneered by a Latin American author called André Gunther Frank and by an Egyptian author called Samir Ami. It was linked also to World Systems Theory, which uh, was published uh, in, in 1974 by Emmanuel Wallerstein, and also by Dependency Theory in Latin America, uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, who actually was a, a recent uh, president of Brazil. So, into this modernization climate, uh, the, the optimism of this post-war period, what the French called les trente glorieuses, the, the glorious 30 years after the Second World War, came another uh, theory which said, uh, basically, there is no way out unless the poor countries make a decisive and revolutionary break with the American-European system, which screwed them up in the first place. Uh, now, I, I think I'd better stop there. I'm not going to finish talking about Walter Rodney today. There are lots of opportunities to come back and forward between the top topics. His book certainly deserves more consideration than I've been able to give it today, but that will do for now. Thank you.